you know, people need support in that. People need somebody to say, hey, you're going to get through this. It's going to be okay. You know, everybody goes through this. You'll be fine. It just takes time and a little bit of patience. Hi, I'm Hannah. And I'm Monica. And you're listening to Cage Nation. Welcome back, listeners. Hello. Welcome back to the show. We are still at home still quarantined we're at least in our social distancing spaces yes we're trying to connect but stay distant at the same time it's a very awkward situation that's right so this month is national reentry month also known as second chance month this month we have two guests which is our first two guest episode which is really exciting And our two guests are from the Justice Arts Coalition, and it is Carol and Wendy. And listeners, you'll hear that I am not on this recording. I was not able to make this call. Um, Wendy and Carol and Cage Nation podcast are in very, very different locations, which is actually kind of cool because we were able to record from far away, but also really hear the perspectives from different people and so monica the listeners will be listening to you this week or this month i was running solo this week that's right what a cool episode yeah this was a really fun recording i love that we're in three different time zones which had its own unique challenges but i think it kind of shows that this work you know is a part of cage nation um that it's not just the Pacific Northwest or where we are, um, that it's all across the country. And so it's exciting to hear from people who are experiencing the same issues that we're talking about um, in different states and doing work all over the country. It's just exciting. So cool. And I couldn't think of a better guest to have for Second Chance Month. I think Carol has really, really, and the listeners will be able to hear, Carol's really, really working hard to um, navigate reentry, and you'll hear some of her experiences. So Carol had just released from prison. She was about eight, seven or eight months from her from her release, um, or after release, after a thirteen year prison sentence. Yeah, that's a long time. If you just even think of that timeline of what any of us were doing thirteen years ago versus what we're doing seven months ago or six months ago or today. Those are vastly different things. And so I was surprised to hear that Carol had only been out less than a year because the way that she's talking is so reflective and so insightful that you might think that she had um, really established herself in the community for quite some time. And so to know that she had only been out less than a year was still getting things together and taking time to share her experience, network, um, be able to share some of her story. It's just so impressive. And truly inspiring. Listeners, you'll be able to hear Carol talk about her experience navigating technology and housing and getting an ID. And we'll talk about that a little bit later in the episode. These are really, really big things for anyone to navigate, let alone not being in the community for 13 years. And I think the other cool part of this episode is really hearing Wendy and the Justice Arts Coalition, their efforts to connect people and advocate for people and showcase people's talents and arts and passions, kind of no matter where they're at, just just trying to meet them and their needs. And, And it's just incredibly inspiring and such a perfect interview for Second Chance Month. I completely agree. So to get started, I'm really glad to have both uh, Carol and Wendy here, and they can introduce themselves, but I'm really excited to hear about your work and perspectives around art and incarceration and reentry and folks connected to that community. The first question that we have on Cage Nation podcast is, when does a person's sentence end? And so, Carol, I'm curious from your perspective, when do you think your sentence ended? Wow. (laughs) In some ways, I feel like it hasn't ended yet. 
um, mm. be, because people always have an attitude about where you've been. And I have met a few people that were, um, well, very, very inclusive and very um, sympathetic and, and interested in hearing, you know, how this process was going, but there's also people that just kind of get that deer in the headlights look and um, they're never going to treat you like a normal person ever. So in some respects, you know, it, it almost never ends, but I don't know, you kind of have to compartmentalize those moments and really focus on the positive ones and try to get past it. Right. And Wendy, for you, when do you think someone's sentence ends? Yeah, you know, I think, I mean, Carol is much, much better to speak on this than I am because I don't have the personal experience of being incarcerated. But from from my work over many, many years with many people who who are currently or have been incarcerated, my sense is very much like what Carol said, that in many ways, for many people, the the experience of, of incarceration continues on long after they've come home into their communities um, or other communities for that matter. There are so many, there are so many barriers in place to ever really becoming fully free to being able to thrive, um, whether it's barriers to access to, to safe and affordable housing, um, barriers to access to employment, to you know, so many basic needs that, in addition to the um, the stereotypes and biases that people outside hold towards folks who um, are open in saying they've been incarcerated, or for you know, for whom um, that label is is kind of affixed and carried on into their lives. Um, I mean, we can rattle off the list of, of the number of ways that people with a with a background um, in the system are marginalized, are alienated by um, by our communities and by by the structures that um, keep our you know keep our communities intact. And oftentimes, you know, that's not just in a professional realm, in a um, in an educational or a, or a realm of career and employment, but that can be very personal too in families and broken friendships and, and, you know, coming home into, you know, hopefully familiar, a familiar place with familiar people and finding that many of the relationships that you had prior to your incarceration um, are no longer intact. And I think in some ways that can be the hardest thing, because if you come home and don't have the support from family and friends that you need, that we all need, there's really, there's so little ground to stand on. This is, this is so true, especially if you have done a considerable amount of time. You know, I yeah. basically feel like, I feel like a time traveler. You know, I had never even had a cell phone, let alone a smartphone, you know, and, uh, and you come out and, and. Utah has what they call a good landlord law, where they actually incentivize not renting to felons. <clears throat> they uh, get a they get a tax break if if they promise not to rent to felons. And that makes them a good mm. landlord. Yes, I see. So, Monica, Carol just said that in Utah some landlords are incentivized not to rent to felons or people with felonies. Yeah, I think it's interesting when she said that. I thought here it's really quite the opposite for lots of different reasons, whether it be taxes or other like um, just things that incentivize um, specifically in urban areas like apartment complexes to to rent to people um, with legal legal backgrounds or other barriers or low income. I thought does it was that, really interesting. Yeah. Does that also make you extremely angry or is that just me? No, I think that it makes me angry. It makes, first it makes me a little confused. Like, I'm like, how does that happen? Like, what do you like? Where's who is incentivizing that meaning? Like, where's the money coming from? And like, I mean, we all know who's benefiting from that, but 
I was like confused when I first heard her say that because I'm used to the opposite here. Mm -hmm. I also think it's interesting, you know, one of the things we haven't yet really talked about is small town and rural reentry and how that looks so incredibly different um, for people who are reentering. I remember going into a prison one time and one of the times I was there, I was talking with some gentlemen who were getting out and they were begging, I mean pleading not to go back to their small town. They were saying, what can I do? Is there anything I can do? Can I, can I call someone? Can I get an address? Like, what does it take for me to get out of the small town? I can't go back. And, you know, I think it's, it wasn't that they didn't want to go back to their community. They kept saying over and over and over again, there is nothing there. I will have nothing. I can't get anything. All of these things I've done in prison, all of these programs I've done, these certificates I have mean almost nothing when I go back because I have nothing. Um, and, and I could see the difference for people who are going back to an, a more urban environment or even a bigger city or town who had a program that they were releasing to or had a, had a peer support that they were releasing to. Um, and these smaller towns really, really struggle sometimes to accommodate the needs and support people in their reentry. Yeah, I think what Carol talks about in her release in Utah wouldn't be unlike many counties in the central part of our state, which is Oregon, or the eastern part of our state. I think we forget about that. That's the majority of our state um, is the least populated, but most people are coming back to the western side of the state. Uh, between Portland and Salem and Eugene. But I think we kind of forget about the rest of the state mm -hmm. and um, they don't have what we have at all. Um, I've had a chance to visit a lot of counties in the state and learn about parole and probation and housing and like, how do they make all this happen? Um, it's been shocking and not in a good way to see what people are provided there's a county, um, I won't call them out because they've made some changes since then, but when I first started in the field, their reentry plan, I'm not kidding, um, we're kind of back to this because of COVID, but their reentry plan for people coming out of any state facility was, here's, I think it was like a $20 gift card and a tent. So In a tent? In a tent. So here you go and good luck and hope things work out. And if you do end up back in jail, we're gonna be really unhappy with you. We're probably gonna send you back to prison. Although we're in a kind of a crazy time, people are similar. I mean, people are getting out of jail right now and being given tents. Um, I mean, we're in the midst of a pandemic, um, but I guess you could equate that to prison reentry. Um, you know, it's still kind of a real thing right now. So. Yeah, I think there's a big difference between going back to a small community, um, not a lot, not a lot happening, not a lot of job prospects, and also everyone knows everyone. Mm -hmm. So I think that also speaks to Carol's point about who you can rent from. I'm sure that also goes to where you can work, and everyone knows your history, and people are upset with you, or you owe money to so-and-so. Um, in an urban area, you can get lost a little bit easier, and that can kind of be a benefit for some people. Wow. <laughs> I made over 300 phone calls in the two weeks before I got out to try to find housing, and I was unsuccessful. Um, even the places that said that they were felon-friendly, um, their exception to that is if you have a violent charge or you're a sex offender, they do mm -hmm. not have to rent you at all. Wow. And Carol, you're someone who had the, you know, who had the, um, the motivation, the wherewithal, the, the resources to be able to make those phone calls and whatever support you needed within the facility to be able to make those phone calls and, you know, to put that huge amount of effort into trying to situate yourself upon your return, whereas, Most you know, a lot don't. of people don't. A lot of people no. don't, and no, it, whether it's because they don't have the resources or the support to yeah. do it, or just, 
or just to, you know, have been beaten down so much over the years of being inside that, yep. the, that the motivation isn't there for good reason. Well, like in our facility, um, I was sent to a small county facility for the last five years of my sentence, and a local mm -hmm. phone call was $17 for 20 minutes. And, you know, I, I wasn't expecting to get out when I did, and it was kind of, it was a surprise. It was a real shock to everybody. And so it was a scramble to see, you know, how I could find a place to live. And I had to approach the officers and say, look, there's no way I can afford to make these phone calls. I can't even make one. And so I had an officer that was very kind and let me use a uh, staff phone in mm. an attorney client room, you know, for like several days. But that is not what normally happens. Usually they're just kind of like, oh, well, <laughs> sorry. For yeah, your luck. not my. Right. Not, not my problem. problem. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's if you have the courage, the confidence, um, mm -hmm. kind of even the wherewithal to ask. Um, and that's yeah. not a system, obviously, that invites questions or that no. invites challenges or that invites like, hey, let's do something different or let's try to problem solve. It's a system that the automatic answer is typically no. Um, and yep. you're going to have to figure it out on your own. Right. Yep. Wendy, can you talk a little bit about um, Justice Arts or Prison Arts Coalition? I'm sorry if I'm using the wrong words there. I see it both ways, and so I'm not exactly <laughs> sure which to reference. But can you talk That's a little okay. bit about um, what what your work is and kind of how it sure. started? Sure. Yes, you're 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 right, but in both <laughs> in both ways. So. The Justice Arts Coalition is the current name of um, something that started in 2008 as the Prison Arts Coalition. And the Prison Arts Coalition was an online resource that was developed by a small group of teaching artists who were um, providing arts programming in carceral settings across the country who realized that um, people in their field really needed a way to more easily share resources, um, a platform to kind of amplify the work that they were doing to, to demonstrate the value of the work that they were doing and also to share out the work that was being created by um, incarcerated artists and that, and that includes writers and musicians and um, actors and visual artists mm -hmm. inside. So they, they worked together to create um, a, a website and on that website, they started loading up all kinds of um, resources, articles, videos, stories about um, arts programming in prisons and jails across the country and reentry programs and diversion programs. Um, they started a blog where teaching artists and system-involved artists could share their stories, um, talk about their work, bring more, bring more public attention to the work that they were doing. They started developing an online directory of um, arts programs across the country that were functioning in carceral settings and just building out this amazing online resource um, and created social media to go along with it and, and opened an email account. And um, about three years into that, and I guess it was 2011, I um, met through some work that I was doing, one of the teaching artists who had started that site, her name was Judith Tannenbaum and she had recently published a memoir that she had co-written. Um, she's, a, she's a poet and visual artist and was teaching in California prisons. And she and one of her students um, in one of the prisons, a poet by the name of Spoon Jackson, had co-written a memoir. And I was interviewing mm -hmm. them for, some, um, for an article that I was writing. And Judith told me about the website. I think I, I'm sure I've seen it. Um, and mentioned that they, the teaching artists that started the site were in, were in need of a lot of help maintaining the site. It had become much busier than they had anticipated over the last couple of years. So I, at the time, um, had just finished a grad program and was, and was looking for work and had recently finished up after spending a year um, facilitating a creative writing program in a jail in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and was mm. really, really passionate about continuing on in that line of work. That experience had very much transformed my life and, and my views about a lot of things and, and just really drove home um, how 
impactful the act of creating together in community um, can be for folks inside, but also for me coming from the outside in building mm -hmm. relationships, in um, finding shared meaning, in, in strengthening, you know, our, our sense of identity. Monica, why are arts, why is that a thing in prison and why do people care about it? Why should people in the community care about it? Why do we care about it? Like, what's the big deal? Yeah, I think that art and creativity on the inside, um, it's a lot of things. I think, of course, it's a way to pass time. Um, for, so for some people, it's a hobby. Um, it's also currency, um, so it's a skill and it's something that can kind of help you get by. It's something that some people find while they're there. They realize that um, they had an interest or they can develop a skill. Uh, maybe they're looking at a book or they're talking to other people or they want to send a card home to their child. And so art is one of the things that doesn't require a whole lot as far as resource that you could take um, an eyeline, eyeliner pencil and you could create a really cool piece of art. And so people are very creative and very resourceful when it comes to art supplies. I mean, all different kinds of mediums can take place. And so I think why it's important, it's about expression. It's a way to connect. It's something that, again, doesn't require a, a lot as far as you don't need an art studio. It can just be you, a pencil and a piece of paper, and you sort of get a chance to get lost in something. I think escape is something that's really important when you're in stressful environments. And so being able to have an outlet for how you're feeling and then also be able to share it with other people is really important as well. So I think it's a really interesting thing that pretty much every day people know about. Like people know what it means to see prison art or look at something and know that it's a part of prison art, um, which I think is interesting of all the cultural things that we could have relevance or know about. Um, for prisons, that's something that I think most people know. Yeah, and I also think it's an interesting place of how more human could you get than than art, and it and it really, you know, offers a space to process. One of the things I think people forget with people who are incarcerated or people who are reentering, it's this huge process. No matter what stage you're in, there's a lot of grief. There's a lot of things that you're trying to process, and art becomes this amazing medium no matter what no matter what medium you're you're practicing in your art to really navigate that process and kind of showcase what that means for you and so it's really awesome that Wendy and Carol are able to not only engage in that but also support other artists as they as they're trying to navigate their own process um, so I really wanted to continue on. So I was like, Hey, I'll, I will happily, you know, volunteer to help you with this website for the time being. And as I said, that was 2011 and I continued managing the site, um, just as a volunteer for many years after that, um, until present. But over the last five years or so, there's been a really big push kind of nationwide among mostly teaching artists and arts program administrators that are that are working inside to develop a national organization that kind of uplifts and supports their work and and builds bridges between all of the people around the country who are engaged in this work whether they're incarcerated or on the outside and so um, a national steering committee was formed in 2015 at a, at a big national conference with the goal of launching a national network, a national organization to support this work. And it was determined over a couple of years of that steering committee meeting that the Prison Arts Coalition website would be the kind of the online launch pad for this initiative. So mm. over the last year, I have taken on kind of the the role of spearheading the transformation of the Prison Arts Coalition online resource into the Justice Arts Coalition national nonprofit. Um, and so in doing so have continued, have continued building the online resource, but at the same time really expanding out into, um, into communities, doing a lot more 
work here locally in the D.C. area um, to really embed the organization here, familiarize the local community with it and with what, you know, the, the work that we do. So in doing that, um, in addition to doing a, a ton of direct support to incarcerated artists across the country, we have a mailing list right now of about almost 200 artists across the country who are um, incarcerated and, and then many more who, who are now out. Um, and we provide them with our online galleries to show their work and all of our social media to show their work, but also um, connect them with exhibition opportunities, publishing opportunities for writers. Um, we connect them with artists on the outside in, a, in an arts-based pen pal program, which has been really, really powerful. Um, we have, we host exhibitions here in the DC area. We actually just opened our third this week, a very oh, wow. large exhibition of works by over 25 incarcerated and formerly incarcerated artists at, um, President Lincoln's cottage here in DC. And oh, wow. yeah, we had our opening on Thursday night and it was, <laughs> it was phenomenal. Carol's work is in the show. Um, we had 140 people come for the opening reception on Thursday night. We had, oh, wow, um, that's so cool. Yeah, part a, a big part of what we want to do as a coalition is really um, uplift the work of other organizations working in this space. So mm -hmm. we, whenever we have an exhibition or an event, we do what we can to like to provide a platform for some of the local organizations to show off their work. So we had Voices Unbarred, which is a local theater theater program that works in Virginia prisons. And then they, they take they take some of the theatrical pieces they've written inside and perform them outside um, with formerly incarcerated folks um, starring in the in the performances. So they perform for us. Um, we did some poetry readings of of poems written by folks in a writing class at a Maryland prison. Um, yeah. So phenomenal work we also do letter writing nights where we bring new artwork that we've that we've received from from people inside into community spaces and invite volunteers to come um, interact with the artwork reflect on the artwork and then write letters to the artists um, with their feedback their thoughts their feelings about it and that has also again like proven just to be so so incredibly impactful for the artists and carol can speak to this better than i can but everything we hear is that receiving that feedback um from strangers is yeah. what um motivates folks to you know to pick up that pen pick up that paintbrush keep creating it's a reason to get up in the morning it's you know it gives it provides so much hope um, a really strong sense of connection. They always write, but you know, the, the incarcerated artists always write back. Um, mm. So excited to have, you know, to have received that validation from people on the outside. Um, so we do that. We, um, in the future, the hope is that we, you know, we develop a strong enough infrastructure as an organization that we can um, have a full team of, you know, of paid staff. Um, and start launching conferences, um, local, you know, local convenings for people who are involved in or interested in this, in this work, um, performances, many more exhibitions, larger exhibitions, traveling, traveling ones across the country, and um, webinars for teaching, you know, teaching artists who are wanting to bring their passion, their craft into prisons and jails. Um, and we also hope to develop a, a, a program for returning artists. Um, oh, yeah. starting starting locally working on um, business development and potentially an artist cooperative um, and then branching mm -hmm. out if that if that goes well branching that out into um, programs across the country that can be modeled off of off of it so a lot going on it's a very 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 busy organization right now yeah, yeah. Um, we get we get more mail than I could have possibly ever imagined in my life I got I got lectured by the postal worker the other day I went to check the P.O. box and there was so much mail that it was falling out the other end and she said you need to check your mail more often because we can't fit it in your box and I said I know but I was just here two days ago <laughs> and that's mm. just like the <laughs> it's crazy um, and wonderful and beautiful and we are you know our ultimate goal is if we you know the, the artwork really is it, it, 
it's a, it's a, it's a vehicle for a relationship. It's a vehicle for connection. And the more people on the outside who engage with this, with this artwork and with the stories and voices of the people who are creating it, um, the more people we have on the outside who care, who believe that they, you know, now that they are in, in a form of relationship with someone on the inside, they all of a sudden have a stake and they all yeah. of a sudden care about what happens to people on the inside. And ultimately, you know, the, the, the long view is we are, we are harnessing the power of the arts to transform this system, to mm. decarcerate, to, yeah. to, to imagine different ways of doing justice that are really grounded in, um, in collaboration, in safety, in partnership, in humanity, in empathy, in, um, in relationship. And, and I, and I fully believe that, you know, the arts and art artists are the best vessel for that. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. And yeah. using something, I mean, this project really is using something that is, um, it's like hard to measure how valuable it is for people yeah. and especially the connection. It's like a lifeline to the outside when you talk about um, exhibits and community and people being interested on the outside, um, how crucial that is for people still on the inside. Yeah. And maybe, and maybe Carol, you can talk about how you and I yes. connected. And <laughs> Well, you know, I had been looking for some sort of art connection on the outside the entire time I was down. I was down for 13 years. And most of my efforts um, were unsuccessful. You know, there were places that would ask me to donate artwork. Um, I'd never hear back from them. You know, I'd send things out and it'd just be gone. And then my mom found uh, the Prison Arts Coalition website one day and, and, and she talked to Wendy and she contacted me and she said, you know, I really think you should talk to this Wendy person. It really seems like she's doing some interesting things. And I'd had so many bad experiences that it literally took me about a year before hmm. of us of us talking before I thought, well, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna take a gamble here and I'm gonna go ahead and send some of my originals to her and see what happens. Yeah. And I was just blown away by the response that I got. You know, immediately she's sending me information. I mean, hardly a week went by that I didn't get some kind of communication that had exhibits that I could participate in or feedback from uh, people who had seen my work on their website. And when, especially in Utah where there aren't any art programs, and they actively discourage you from any kind of creativity. Um, you know, it was, it's like, you feel like you're doing guerrilla warfare just to crochet something. <laughs> it's just, it's insane. You know, when SWAT comes through and, uh, you know, counts your balls of yarn and takes them all away from you. And um, yeah. I mean, really, how embarrassing if you're a SWAT guy, that's what you have to do for a living, you know? <laughs> Yeah, that's what you're compensating. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and next week, we're coming for your eyeliner, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, it's just incredibly petty. But the bottom line was that when you're creating in a, in a vacuum like that, you know, you don't know how people are going to respond to your work. You're just frantically trying to do something to keep from opening the vein, you know? You want to be, you're trying to be busy, you're trying to develop a skill, you're trying to do things that will connect you with your children. And it's really, really difficult because everything is working against you. And to all of a sudden yeah. have this like global network, you know, just laid at my feet to show people things and to, to have um, discussions with people was just, it was a lifesaver. It was Absolutely. an absolute lifesaver. Yeah, and, and for people listening to our show who aren't uh, familiar with prison culture or what it's like on the inside, um, conformity and uh, trying to find a way to fit in is the most valued thing. And so when you think about something like creativity or art, 
obviously that's not anything that's encouraged. Um, and I remember working on the inside um, and being able to provide some folks with some materials for, I can't even remember what it was, a small project, like a collage. And the really amazing things that would come from so very little, like a magazine and a pair of scissors and the things that people would create and come up with was just incredible. Oh, yeah. And when all of that is removed, prohibited, monitored, um, you learn to hide mm -hmm. it. Um, and you learn also to become yep. very resourceful with what you have. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, aggravation is the mother of creativity. <laughs> There's no doubt about Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's a great way to put it. But I paid $150 for black market crochet books when I was at the prison. Oh and, my God. Uh, just so that I could do the kind of artwork that I wanted to do. And, and keeping them hidden at all times was, you know, that was quite a challenge. Yeah, that's not easy. Carol, what was it like for you releasing and going back into the community as an artist? <laughs> oh, yeah. That's been, you know, the biggest problem that I have had coming out. Well, there's two things. One is just not having access to... Uh, materials and working space. When I went to prison, I had a studio that was, it took a semi to move. And when I got out of prison, I had a bag of crochet hooks and colored pencils and some sweatpants, and that was it. Mm. And, um, you know, couldn't find housing. And so I ended up living in like a 1975 little Dodge motorhome thing. And, uh, so just trying to be safe and warm and, and have running water, things like that, and work at the same time. You know, I'm, I found that I really didn't have time to do the kind of artwork that I had envisioned myself doing as soon as I got out. I was too busy just trying to survive. And then when I do have opportunities to be around people, you know, you have this crippling social anxiety of... Uh, really not knowing how to handle things. I mean, you might look okay on the outside, but as, mm -hmm. as an example, my mother took me to a weaving store and it's in this little old house and the old houses, they have all these doors, these different, you know, to your rooms. And it's very crowded and people are brushing up against me. And I had a panic attack because it's like, there was no place that I could get my back against the wall and monitor all the entrances and keep people a safe distance from me. Now I know that all these wonderful women are not going to try to stab me. However, I still <laughs> had like that body memory of needing to be vigilant. And it, it, mm. it was a real barrier to being able to just interact with people comfortably and, and talk about my work. And I, you know, I had to go out in the, in the parking lot and hyperventilate for a while, but, uh, it's, you know, I've been, I've been out for, I guess, about seven months now, and it's, it's starting to subside a little bit. And Carol, Carol was courageous enough to, two, two weeks after you got out, was it? <laughs> yeah. Came to California from Utah for a conference for like a oh my God. Week, week long almost conference. Yeah. Um, wow. To present to the, um, to the, field basically of, of people across the country who are involved in arts-based work in the system and, people and you came on a bus in. with like a load of your crochet pieces yeah. Yeah, and everyone was so fascinated and you know so in love with your artwork and wanted to talk to you and I know I mean I know it was really hard it was I thought I was going to have a nervous breakdown every day because people yeah. would just swoop in and try to hug me and it was like ah <laughs> carol are there other no. things that you think would be important for folks to know about or you know when you think about prison reentry, you haven't been out for that long and you were down for a long time um which i didn't realize i didn't realize that you just got out not that long ago yeah. so are there other things that you think would be important for folks to know about just not even just with art, but just as being a woman, um, also releasing to like a rural area. Yeah. Rural areas are tough. Um, well, it's like one of the things that I dealt with was people saying, well, you know, you better have a job within a certain amount of time. You know, we expect you to be 
expect you to be working and, and, uh, you know, and I'm thinking, yes, I want to, you know, I'm going to get a job and I'm going to be on my feet and I'm going to be out of everybody's hair and I'm not going to be a burden to anybody. And then I went and tried to get my ID and mm. it took me three months just to get mm -hmm. my ID. In fact, I was originally supposed to fly to California, but because I couldn't get a, um, a hard copy ID, they wouldn't let me fly. So I had to take the Greyhound bus and, uh, and with women, especially, it's like if you have had social security cards and driver's licenses from like when you're married or divorced or your maiden name on anything, you have to pay money to get all that stuff changed. Men don't. If men get, you know, move on or do what you have a different life, they don't have to. But women, you have to go pay to get your divorce decrees, pay to get your marriage decrees, pay, pay to get your birth certificates, and prove that your name is your name. Yeah, prove who you and are. So, yeah, so it was very expensive, and it took a long time to end up with a driver's license and a Social Security card that matched. And without those things, you couldn't. I couldn't get a bank account. I had a check from artwork that I had uh, <sighs> that I had sold. And I could not even get that cash to put towards housing because I couldn't get a bank account without a proper ID. So getting an ID, this is one of the basic things for people when they are getting out of prison. It's a big concern. Most, I would say most people don't have an ID or they have an expired ID, um, which isn't gonna get you very far. And to navigate anything in the world, whether you want to get into housing, you want to go to the doctor, you want to apply for a job, you have to have a way to prove who you are. And so I love that Carol brings this up because I think it is a real issue. Um, I've seen a lot of effort in the community around resources to make sure like this is almost like a, a very com this is a very common thing in our community kind of like a checklist like okay do you have these things are you getting snap benefits do you have health insurance do you need an id but i think in other communities in other states um maybe in rural areas maybe it's not so much of a concern or it's not really something that they're asking and so I really appreciate that Carol brings this up because um, I think it's a very practical thing that some listeners may be like, what do you mean an ID? Like, why would that be a big deal? Or like, just go to the DMV and like pay for your ID, like not a big deal. Um, but it's not quite that simple. I think one of the most, and I think you and I have talked about this before and, and probably on, the, on one of our episodes, one of the saddest things is when someone gets released and they lose their prison ID like right out the gate it's gone yeah. it's here, right they haven't had to navigate the these many things and choices and keeping track of things for so long and right out the gate they'll lose their prison ID and at that point it becomes almost impossible really to to prove your identity in a government official type of way and there are so many barriers like you were just saying and like Carol talked about to actually get your ID and Carol Carol made a really interesting point that I hadn't really thought about which is this very gendered part of getting ID and proving yourself after name changes and divorces or marriages and 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 who would have thought yeah I think that women are faced with a unique set of challenges whether it be that they were divorced or married or remarried or decided to go back to a maiden name or a former name the other thing that i just thought about as you were talking was most people before they're going to prison do not want to verify their identity with anyone um it's really a value to kind of be lost or blurred in um, in whatever lifestyle that you came from. But I would say if you're involved in crime in any way, it's typically, um, it's typically a, a favorable thing or something to value um, to not really know. No one really knows um, someone's like legal name. Um, that's why there's so many street names and nicknames for people. And so to go through prison and whatever you're trying to experience there as far as your identity, like figuring out who you are and then even getting out and like literally having to prove who you are. Like there's some people that have told me 
um, I've never had an ID. Mm -hmm. I've, I've never had one or it was always the wrong name or, oh yeah, like in high school, I think I had something, but I've never, I've never had a driver's license. I kind of avoid all that. I avoid paperwork. I avoid interacting with the government in any way. So I do think it's an interesting, um, I guess, like metaphor or concept to have to prove who you are uh, once you're getting out. And it's another point of accomplishment. I, I've had so many people I've worked with get an ID for the first time. And it is so amazing and empowering for them to have this like ID and it's their real name and it's their address that they have. Mm -hmm. um, and it kind of opens, like Carol said, it, it opens so many doors to have this piece of identification that we all often take for granted, right? If I, if I lose my ID, okay, well, it's inconvenient and I have to go to the DMV, but it really isn't that big of a deal. And for people re-entering, it is not only such a big process, but it's such a big milestone. Yeah, you also don't have anything. Typically, most people don't have anything when they're getting out. If I lost my driver's license today, I would have three, four, five other things that I could prove who I was and it wouldn't be that big of a deal. I could go to the bank or I could go to the DMV and I could figure it out. For people who are getting out of prison, they don't have anything. They don't have a birth certificate. They don't have a bill or a utility bill in their name. They don't have a permanent residence yet. They don't have a job. They don't have a pay stub. Like they don't have any of that. And so it's really, um, it's like the first step in starting over. So, you know, there was yeah. a lot of impatience mm -hmm. um, towards me for not, you know, getting things organized quicker. And I really, you know, I had no transportation. Um, in a rural area, you know, there's no public transportation and you're, you know, everything is at least 15 miles away, if not long farther. So it's not like sure. you can just, you know, hop on a bus or walk somewhere. So that's, you know, that's been a real struggle. And, uh, you know, trying to order things online, you have to have credit cards or a debit card. You know, all the little things. Well, just with the, just with learning the cell phone stuff, you know, I... My sister got me a, a smart, an iPhone, and my daughter was trying to explain texting to me like the week before I got out, and I literally burst into tears, and I said, you know, this is too much. I, I, I'm still trying to process the fact that I don't have to wear granny panties next week, you know, <laughs> let, alone, <laughs> let alone texting, for God's sakes. Yeah, and things that we might um, take for granted or we don't even think about, you know, oh, we yeah. click a button, like we go to the ATM. It's like, it's it's a lot of like chicken or the egg too, you know, like for example, getting yeah. an ID, yeah. you might need a birth certificate. Uh -huh. In order to get a birth certificate, you need an ID. And so it's like, what, where are you supposed right. to start? How do you begin yep. that process? Yep, that's exactly true. And just the little things, it's like, you try to insulate yourself from things that set you off emotionally but you know you figure when you're in prison you don't have many choices I mean basically you can choose to either follow the rules or not and or not but as far as you know what you're gonna eat or laundry or anything like that that just all happens automatically whether you participate in it or not you get out and all of a sudden your time is consumed with you know, hunting and foraging basically to take care of yourself. And, you know, you go to, you go to a restaurant or something, you know, I had family members that took me out and, oh my gosh, you know, the first time some waitress comes up and rattles off seven different breakfast breads that I need to choose from, I was in tears. You know, I just couldn't handle it. It was mm. just too much. All the anxiety for just making normal choices because you are not allowed to make normal choices when you're in prison. You get out of practice and you just don't even know how to do it anymore. And so it's, and then you really feel like a failure if you can't handle yeah. something that simple. And it's a, it, it really, I can see why people end up relapsing or you know going back for one reason or another because you do feel so incompetent at such simple things. And it's, you know, people need support in that. People need somebody to say hey you're gonna get through this it's gonna be okay you know everybody goes through this you'll be fine it just takes time and a little bit of patience a question for either of you 
and we've already kind of touched on this, but how do you see art and creative expression as a part of social justice work? I think it's really important for people to be able to see the emotion that's behind um, reparative justice and remorse and, you know, a, a fuller view of the effect that whatever incident you were involved in had on everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I'd, I mean, I'd tack onto that by kind of referring back to what I was saying earlier is that, you know, we, we see pieces of ourselves through, through artwork, through create, you know, forms of creative expression, whether it's visual, whether it's music, whether it's dance, we connect to that. We find, um, we find memory, we find um, really like our shared humanity. Right. And I, and, and I think that's kind of the crux of it is like it, by sharing artwork, by sharing writing stories, um, these, you know, pieces of the hearts and minds of human beings who are, who are incarcerated in this country, we are allowing, enabling people on the outside to have reason to care, to mm. see that see the, there's humanity there to see the yeah. humanity, to see the, yeah, the, yeah, like the shared humanity, like, oh, this person isn't that much different from, from me, and oh, wow, I can, you know, really empathize with those experiences that I'm, you know, that I'm seeing and reading about, and, and I've had, you know, maybe I've had similar experiences, or maybe I just know what that feeling is like, um, and it's with that, I think, it's with that caring and that empathy and that, like, direct connection that we generate the critical mass of, of people passionate about change, about creating something new and different that we're going to need to, to really get there, to really to really meet our goals in, in these movements, right? I mean, yeah, you can, I think there are a lot of people out there doing really good work, but it, but when you're not directly connected with those who are most impacted by by an issue, when you're not mm-hmm. making sure that it's their voices who that are that are leading the movement that that we're listening to, that are guiding our actions and our decisions, and those voices can be, you know, spoken, sung, painted, woven moved right I mean it's that I mean that's where we get our that's where the power comes from that's where I think the real inspiration for for change comes from so I I mean to me it's like there is no social justice there are no social justice movements there is no transformative justice there is no um abolition movement without first and foremost leadership from people most impacted but second to that is there has to be innovation and creativity and, and like really, really expansive imagination. And we can get that from listening to looking at what is being created inside. Yeah, and it seems like a common ground or someone, something that people can get on board with or at least relate with is something like, a poem, a piece of artwork, a song, something that um, someone doesn't, someone on the inside doesn't necessarily have to explain all of why or what happened that they ended up yeah. there, but someone on the outside could listen or understand that and, um, and relate. It's like that humanity piece that both of you have mentioned. I'm curious um, from either of you, from Carol or Wendy, are there things that, um, that you would like folks to know who are listening to our podcast, things that we haven't mentioned so far? Well, one of the things that I think is really important about these organizations is that it helps balance out, (laughs) I guess you could say the evil that the internet does, because, Mm -hmm. you know, when people had to re-enter society, you know, years ago, and there, there were no online things to check up on people. You could actually get out and go somewhere and make a new life and be judged by your current deeds, you know, by how, what kind of person mm. you are when you get out. Hmm. Nowadays, 
people, it doesn't matter how long ago it was, people will go online and they will look mm. things up and they treat you as if it happened today. And so right. this really helps balance some of that out. And I think that's really important because we can't throw away people on the base and all their potential on the basis of the worst 15 minutes in their life. They have mm -hmm. a lot more to offer than that. So much more to offer. And, and I just, you know, for me, it's just important to encourage people to find that out for themselves and do so by finding ways to be in relationship with, with people inside. Um, I mean, my, I think the, the course of my life was forever altered by having a, an incarcerated pen pal when I was in 10th grade. Mm. And I, you know, I, that had to have laid the groundwork for the work that I do now. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I mean, have been, have been working in partnership with folks inside since then. Um, and a lot of folks, you know, who've recently come home, but, you know, another thing that I think is important to, to, to shine a light on is that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm encouraging the public to, um, through the art, engage with and support folks who are incarcerated. And I want to say that with a, like, a little bit of warning, too, because it's important to note that there are, and Carol can speak to this and mentioned it earlier, so there are a lot of online platforms for artworks by people in prison. They're not all functioning like with the best intentions. I'm trying not to come yeah. off as being really judgmental or like critical, <laughs> but there is a lot of exploitation that goes on in this realm. There and is. Um, so I want people to be cautious about how they're engaging and through the through what platforms they're engaging and i'm not saying this to be like oh you you know justice arts coalition is the end i'll be out there are phenomenal organizations all across the u.s and beyond all over the world um that are doing you know really really great work with a hell of a lot of integrity and there are people out there who are trying to make a buck off of the work of brilliantly talented innovative people who are incarcerated and who don't get to see what's happening online yeah and don't and have don't the power have to any change any of that yeah change it and don't get yeah. to make choices and so one thing that's been really really like i'm dead set on every step of the way with prison arts coalition and now justice arts coalition is like nothing happens with artwork without permission from mm. the artist and if mm -hmm. I can't get in direct contact with the artists, I'm in touch with their family. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we have we have contact with so many family members, loved ones, um, partners, and friends on the outside too, who can you know who can help us stay connected, help help make decisions. Um, so that like when you're online and you're like, oh, I'm gonna buy some, you know, I'm gonna buy some quote prison art for my you know my nephew who's an activist, like just be careful. Be careful how you're doing that, where you're doing that. Think about, you know, ask, ask a lot of questions. Where is this money that I'm paying going? How much of it is going to the artist um, or the artist's loved ones? Um, does the artist know that you are selling their artwork, right, Carol? <laughs> um, I mean, Carol has had yeah. <laughs> people, people pushing her artwork online without permission for years. Oh, wow. And, and you know, making yep. money off of prints. So it's just, it's just use, you know, use your better judgment and ask, and ask a lot of questions. I was just going to say, you know, I had so many people exploiting my artwork while I was in prison that when I spoke to an attorney about it, they told me that it, the easiest way to deal with it would be to change my name and start over. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's Which easy. Is <laughs> yeah, which is hilarious given our conversation earlier, just to get the ID, just right. to get an ID yeah. with the name that you already have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I would also ask that any any artists out there that are listening to the podcast, um, get on the Justice Arts Coalition website and think about signing up for our partner project. It, it's our Art Space Pen Pal program. Um, and we are recruiting heavy right now artists on the outside to um, put in partnership with with incarcerated artists to exchange writing exchange creative work feedback support it's really a peer mentorship 
um, and everyone who's involved right now is finding it incredibly meaningful. But we really, really, really need folks on the outside to sign up because we have a long waiting list now. Well, again, thank you so much to both of you for joining us and being a part of our project as well. And I really appreciate you sharing your experience and your stories. And um, I'm really inspired by the work that you all are doing. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. And thank you for thank you, thank you for your good work. We appreciate all of you listening today. Um, I'm so thankful for both Wendy and Carol for taking time to talk to us about Justice Arts Coalition and all the really awesome work that they're doing all over the country. Carol is constantly on the move and sharing her art and making a living and also reestablishing herself as a citizen, as a woman, as a family member as a community member. So um, I'm really proud to have someone's story like Carol's on our show. So I really appreciate everyone listening. And it's so cool to see partnerships between people from across the country like Carol and Wendy. And we really want to not only appreciate Carol, but really, really appreciate Wendy and all the work that the Justice Arts Coalition is doing. We will link the URLs to Justice Arts Coalition website and their social media handles for our listeners to be able to see all the amazing work they're doing. Thanks for listening to Cage Nation. Thanks, everyone.